What's up, Wildside Besties and Baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. Well, thank you so much for being on here again. Naturally, I just want to be like, man, I'm cold today and my back is out. But being that, let's see here. What are we sitting at here in Texas? Well, you're in Texas. Yeah. Yeah, I bet you there's a 60 degree difference from where we're at. I I bet you we are sitting at a balmy 41 degrees. Oh, my God. (laughs) I bet you're like, I wish. I wish. You know what? In all honesty, so in 32 days, I'm off to play on the Carmen in Mexico. So I'm excited about that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. If only it was minus 58 when I leave instead of plus five. But Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. When you start getting that cold, obviously, like, this is not relevant to what you do at all. But when it starts getting that cold, like, is there a difference between negative 12 and negative 40? Does that make sense? Uh, Like, like, is there really that much of a difference? Like, it's so cold that you can't even, like, tell? Minus 12 is, like, t-shirt weather. It's it's fantastic here. (laughs) But minus 47 or minus 50, when you go outside, it honestly takes your breath away. Like, it's you can't breathe outside. Vehicles, Uh like, it took me five days to get my truck started. I had to pull the battery out, get it inside, charge it. Like, it just, even block heaters. Like, I I don't know if you're familiar with block heaters. So up here, we have a, it's a cord that plugs into your oil pan, and it heats the oil. And even at that temperature, it can't even... It can't even keep up. So it's like it's like driving a block of ice. It's brutal. I mean, I guess growing up in South, like way South, like on the coast of Mississippi, yeah. I guess we've had similar experiences, but like on the opposite end of the spectrum, where like <laughs> it's so hot, you yeah, know, yeah. like your mind can't even wrap around like how hot and humid it is. No. Uh, that's, that's so bizarre so bizarre well luke i am really excited to have you here so chelsea and i have been talking about this for about a week my husband unfortunately is on baby duty so he's watching the two-year-old but he wanted he was like can i please just sit in the corner and listen to this because he is kind of a fanboy for you and like what you guys do um same with my husband he's like i've been like watching this stuff i didn't even know this was a thing and i've been watching all this stuff this is amazing it's, yeah it's funny that everyone says that because really what we do is everyone thinks it's like so i've been with the fire department for 20 years as well volunteering um and so you get that of john russian and everyone thinks that diving is kind of the same type of thing like oh you're you jump in and you go and you do all this stuff it is a slow, boring process. Everyone's like, can I come watch you dive? Like, yeah, but you're just going to see bubbles on the water. Like, that's all you're going to see. Like, you're not going to see anything. Like, it's so boring. But, but yeah, it's a really cool experience, especially for us up here. Yeah. Yeah. And if it, if it's okay with you, Luke, because, like, Chelsea and I know all about you and your, oh. your company, your team. Um, but if you don't mind just taking a minute and, and sharing who you are, what you do to our listeners so they know exactly who who you are today. 
So I'm Luke Jevney, and I'm now the chief. I was the president for the last four or five years of the underwater search team. Uh, That's our operating name. Uh, We have a really complicated legal name. It's called the Central Alberta Rescue Diving Society. And every time we get a phone call, law enforcement is like, is this the Central Rescue? So we ended up changing our name to the underwater search team. Um, And so we're a nonprofit, a registered nonprofit organization with, with, as a charity up here in Canada, in Alberta. And Alberta is the only province in Canada that doesn't have a funded dive team. Every, every other province across Canada has a funded, whether it's directly or indirectly through the governments for underwater recoveries. Alberta does not. Rude, rude Alberta. Exactly. And we're such a rich province and, and we try to do everything bigger and better and all that stuff. But unfortunately, we just don't have one. And so in 2012, late 2012, um, I'm kind of in central Alberta, just outside of my hometown. There was two boys that drowned hmm. and there was nobody to recover them. So eight volunteer firefighters had their basic open water diving experience and so they went and tried to find these two boys unfortunately they didn't succeed but they saw the need and they started this organization in 2013 Wow! and it has grown huge since then and so we again alberta not having a, a certified dive team we cover 256,000 square miles that's our territory how do how keep going i'm sorry my mind can't even wrap around that yeah so, so we, we work closely with um, another dive team out of New Jersey. They, we've actually brought them up for training because you can't even get the training that we need up here in Canada. So we brought these New Jersey boys up to give us the training. And so you could fit 17,000 New Jerseys into Alberta. And it just, it boggles their mind how much territory we look after. We can drive 10 hours to a call easily. Like it, from one end of the province to the other end of the province, you're probably looking at driving 23 hours. Wow. Holy cow. I mean, that's kind of how we feel living in Texas, right? Like from the panhandle down to the coast. 100%. I don't know, I don't know what that is off the top of my head. I mean, it's it's a good probably 14 hours or something like that, yeah. but 23 hours, yeah. you know, from one end to the next. Yeah. And so, and so Alberta has 600 lakes, 245 rivers. Um, and so we look after all that. The, but then there's the sloughs and the dugouts and like all the man-made lakes throughout the cities and all that stuff. So there's a, a, a ton of water bodies that we do look out for. Unfortunately, because we travel so far, the reality is we don't do rescues. It's just not a possibility. Right, right. There's no, I mean, there's no way. No. And how many, how many people are, are part of your team when you say we? So as with every volunteer organization, we have 24, 25 people on our books, but there's about a core group of about six or seven of us. Extremely hard to find certified people to do what we do because it's, for one, it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. So you can't just be an open water diver and just jump into the water and think you're going to do something. It's, there's a lot that goes into it. So trying to find the certified people is extremely difficult. And that's why we have to bring the, the Jersey boys up to train us. So when you say it's not like, what did you call it? Open water diving? Open water. Sir. What, what is the difference with the lingo? 
So open water is your basic scuba diving certificate. So if you want to go get certified for scuba diving, your first certificate is going to be in open water. Okay. Uh, so that's basically you do a couple of days of pool training, classroom training, and then you're certified to go down to 30 feet in, in water. And, you know, like it's, it's very different from where I'm at versus the Caribbean. The Caribbean, you get to see everything. You're looking at fish. Yeah. Here in Alberta, it's murky water. We're going in blind. Everything is by feel. And so, and that you don't know what's under the water and that's why it's so dangerous. So what is it that you have? Like what certification, if you will, do you have in, as opposed to open water? Um, so our minimum standards are, is called a public safety diver. So that's basically in order to do body recoveries, you need to have your public safety diver. And that's basically what law enforcement looks for. So that's our starting point. And then now that we brought the Jersey boys up now, I'm an underwater criminal investigator, decontamination expert. I have, I don't know, 30 some certificates all related to public safety diving. Wow. Um, it's very intense. It costs a lot of money. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been, been quite the go for the last few years. And I think Chelsea, because I really want to get back to the certifications and, and what goes into that, what that looks like. Yeah. But talking about the expense, because you guys are a volunteer program, right? Yeah. And Chelsea, didn't you say that you were looking that up? And what did you find? I now I'm probably going to say this number wrong, but I thought that on your site, it was the upwards of like $800,000 to run your program for a year. Did I read that? So, yes, yeah, so that's what we were asking. Originally, we were asking for $800,000 to a million annually to be able to continue because right now all our training, all our personal, all our equipment is all personally funded. And then you have your lost wages every time you go out to a call. And it's not just a one-day call. You're going for upwards of seven weeks on some calls. Mm. Um, so you like three years ago, two years ago, I worked three and a half weeks throughout the summer. So there's a lot of money that gets it, it, taken from your wallet to do this. It's a very expensive hobby mm. without a doubt. But yeah, so to go back to your, your, your number, um, the actual number for a, a fully funded operating dive team, let's say a law enforcement dive team, um, the RCMP, which is our federal police force up here, each province spends about $3.5 million annually to fund their dive teams. Wow. And so we're, we're asking the government for $1.5 million for the first year and then $1 million every year after that, just to be able to maintain. And just while we're, while we're on the topic, how can, how can people donate to your program if they're like, man, what you guys do is amazing? Is there like... A link that we can list in our show notes that they can click on and they can be redirected to how does that work absolutely so on our website um, www.underwatersearchteam.com there is actually a donate now portal that you can go through and it's a secure paypal account and all that stuff and, and they'll come directly to our bank account and you know like donations are very much appreciated but it's unfortunately we're not going to get the 1.5 million dollars in donations Mm -hmm. We need the federal or the, the provincial funding as well, but donations definitely do help us in a long. Until we can get to the point where the the Canadian government essentially is saying, okay, then yeah. we'll, we'll give you the funding that you need. 100%. Okay. 
Mm. Now, is it, you said that Alberta was the only province, is that correct? Yeah. Um, now, so is this an issue, and, and maybe this is way too deep of a question and maybe it's not relevant, but is this a Canadian government thing or is this an Alberta This is an Alberta, Alberta, like this is a, pro, so like we have provinces up here, not states. So this is a provincial issue. Every other province somehow funds their law enforcement. I don't know how or what, but we've been talking with the government for the last two years and we've submitted our proposal for four times now and we're just really trying to hammer it home that this is an unrecognized service. Like it's, there's nobody else in the province that does what we do. Well, if you need, I mean, we'll sign petitions, we'll do whatever we need to do. Um, because again, I think the work that that y'all do is just is so incredible. Um, so if you decide to do a, even if it's on like a legal pad, yellow piece of paper petition. Sure. Chelsea and I will sign it. We'll be here for it. We'll ask our <laughs> listeners to sign it. I mean, because the, it's just, and I think they'll be more motivated based off of like what we start to get into in this interview, right? Once they start yeah, yeah. to really understand the yeah. ins and outs of, of what you do and the work that you do. For sure. And I appreciate that. Yeah. So Luke, I guess um, naturally that next question that we have is obviously you're diving, you're, you're recovering underwater. Now, are you looking for what are you looking for vehicles are you looking for bodies are you like there could be a body in a vehicle what what exactly prompts you to go look you know who calls how what is that process walk us through that process so we will only be deployed by law enforcement that's kind of how we set up our team we're not going out to look for your apple iWatch or your diamond rings or anything like that we're, we're there just strictly for for the lack of a term, uh, an emergency service, which we don't have. So we will have three things that we will look for. Vehicles being one, uh, whether it's for suspicious reasons or insurance claims, we wanna keep our waters clean and contaminant free from oils and gasolines and all that stuff. Evidence recovery is another one. And then the third one is body recovery. And so we need to be deployed by our law enforcement to go out, like unfortunately, Alien tells you, like, you can't call me and say, hey, somebody drowned. Can you come get me? No, unfortunately, we need to be called by law enforcement because until it's proven otherwise, we're treating everything as suspicious. Okay. And so what I hear and what I'm interpreting is when law enforcement is involved, whether it be vehicle evidence or persons, Mm -hmm. um kind of where the land stops and the water begins that's where they call you in and that's where you kind of pick up the process of looking for whatever it is that potentially happened is that right yeah for sure it's it's typically most cases are witness drownings you know they're in a swim area and on a tube and unfortunately they can't swim and down they go and so there's usually a witness statement that goes with it and all that stuff other times there's suspicious activities like they think somebody might be in this pond and they just want us to go and check the pond or clear it they might be looking for somebody they don't know where they are and they just want us to go clear the area so we we do a lot of that as well 
Luke, what do you feel the breakdown is like? And I'm sure that that varies from, you know, month to month, year to year. What percentage of it is usually um, more environmental, like you said, like retrieving a vehicle, um, you know, again, whether it be environmental concerns or insurance? And then what percentage of it is we're we're suspecting that there's a drowning and could you guys please get involved and there will be a possible body recovery? It's probably 80% body recovery, 10% vehicle and 10% evidence. It's pretty hard to put a vehicle in the water in the middle of summer out here. It's usually like we get a vehicle or two in the, in the winter when they bust through the ice. Uh, again, with this year being so mild, it's happened a couple times already. Yeah, typically it's about 80% body recoveries. Wow. And so what, what does that typical dive look like? Black. <laughs> it's very dark. So it's, again, like we have such a diverse environment up here in Alberta. We have the plains, we have the Rocky Mountains, we have the, the forests up north. So every dive is very different. Sometimes we're in glacier fresh water. Sometimes we're in basically sewage reserves. Um, mm. it's, it's not a pretty sight at all. And like I said, it, it, it's, there, there is no visibility. If you have an inch of visibility, you're probably lucky. So everything is by feel. We have a, our system set up with special grid patterns, directing our divers from the top side. Uh, we have special patterns we set up underwater to like line searches so that we can systematically clock, check off areas. It's a very slow process. So if there's a drowning victim, to search a, an area 100 meters by 100 meters or 100 yards by 100 yards could take 8, 10, 12 hours sometimes. Yeah, you know, that was kind of one of the questions that my husband, when I was talking with him <clears throat> about it, excuse me. Um, so my husband and, and I fish a little bit. My husband fishes and he has an uncle who has a boat and they go out onto the lake. And his uncle has this kind of sonar system. Mm -hmm. Right when he's when they're looking for schools of fish, yeah, and yeah. that was one thing that uh, my husband was asking is, do you guys have similar equipment, kind of a sonar? And I and obviously I am grasping at words because I am not very I am yeah. very ignorant. But do you have equipment that is like, ooh, we're seeing a a difference in the depths right here, and it's showing us that there might be something down there that is not typical for this area. For sure. So the last thing we want to do is put a diver in the water. Like, even though we call ourselves divers, because it's so dangerous, we don't want to be putting ourselves at risk. So what we'll do is um, if we get called out to call, the first thing we want to do is we want to deploy our technology. So what we have is called a side scan sonar and an ROV, a remote underwater operated vehicle. It's like a drone that goes underwater. Yeah. But what we'll do is we'll start out first with our side scan sonar. And this isn't a typical fish finder type thing. They all claim that they have side scan sonars, but they're very, very limited. What we have is we have a hundred feet of cable with a, it's called a tow fish. It looks like a torpedo that we drop down below and we want to keep the boat six feet off the floor of the, the lake or the river. And then it shoots out a beam, goes down and it shoots out a beam horizontally. And what are we looking for is like shadows. So imagine taking um, a Barbie doll and having a flashlight along the side of it. So you, 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 you're looking for shadows is what you're looking for that kind of mimics 
an object that you're looking for. And so we can scan about 150 feet on each side to the right and to the left of the boat as we're dragging this thing along. So we can cover off a ton of area. And then we can take that data, we record all the data, we can put it in a computer, and then we can start zooming in on objects, we can start measuring the size of objects. Because what happens is we have a lot of deadfall in the lakes and objects in the lakes. So sometimes a body will look like a, a log or a log will look like a body. And so you need to really start measuring objects because if you start measuring objects and this looks like a body, but it's measuring 12 feet long, well, it's not a body. So you don't need to dive down and check that out. Mm. So we start crossing off a lot of potential targets and then we'll come up with systematically with okay, what's the witness statement say? What does measure properly? What really shows a good shadow? And then we'll start hitting those targets. Okay. Now, this may sound like a silly goose kind of question, but you mentioned that it's dangerous and it's hazardous. How, I mean, obviously, other than the obvious of, of being underwater, right, and relying a lot of on gear and, and feel because you cannot see, what else kind of makes it such a such a dangerous occupational piece for you? So we work and we train in what's called IDLH environments, immediately dangerous to health and life environments. So it's it's when you're underwater, you don't have a second chance. Like you just can't take a breath of air and hold your breath and pop back up. So you're you're in extremely dangerous environments. Um, you can't come up too fast. So if you're at a depth, a, a deep depth, and you need to make an emergency ascent, there's dangers that could happen to you as well. The bends, like lots of lots of other things. Then you're also in there into the unknown. You can't see. You can't hear. All your senses are stripped away from you except for feel. So you have no idea what you're doing or anything like that. So we rely heavily on the top side or the sonars to tell us what's going on down there. And then there's equipment failures that could happen, all that stuff. So it's, we always have to be concentrating on our divers when they're in the water, always checking in, all that stuff. And even things like we count the bubbles as they're, as they're underneath, you know, how many, how many bubbles is it per minute that they're blowing up, right? Well, they're blowing about eight bubbles per minute. They're pretty relaxed get into the 12 bubbles per minute, oh, they're starting to stress out or something like that. So we're always paying attention to them. Yeah. Well, and you were saying you're relying, excuse me, heavily on feel, but I imagine that's even d diminished because you've got to be wearing some sort of equipment on your hands, right? Like you're, you're not barehanded when you're in these waters. Yeah. Right. And, and because it's like, so typically our waters, especially in the winter and fall and spring, it's about four degrees yeah. and so it's cold. So you're wearing like insulated gloves and then you're because of the contamination, you're wearing rubber gloves on top of that again. And so, yes, you, you feel a stick. It might feel like a femur. You're trying to figure out, you're trying to break the stick underwater to see if it's going to break. And then you kind of, okay, well, there's something there. So it's, it's all, again, the, the feeling is the only sense that you get. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, I, you know, it's like, I'm glad you said that. I'm also glad that I'm like, oh, am I glad that I heard that you say, is that a word? Let me see if I can break this, right? <laughs> but that really, kind of that next question in my mind was like, okay, so you're down there and it's, you can't see anything and you can't hear anything and you're feeling around. 
do you kind of get that spidey sense when you when you touch something like you personally luke have you had that experience where you're like i'm pretty sure that what i'm feeling and what i'm about to retrieve is what i think it is yeah you know what i mean it, you you know you're down there for a purpose and a reason, and and you so you mentally prepare yourself for that. But when you are blacked out, it's still like it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, it's still a shock factor. Mm. Sometimes you miss it with your hands and you bounce off the object with your face or or something like that, and it's just and, and not to sound gory or anything like that, but it's again you can't see anything and you don't like. Lights don't work down there because of the, the algaes and the turbidities and all that stuff. So it's always a shock factor every single time. Um, we talked. We touched base a, a little bit about this, Luke, when when I reached out to you and asked you um, to join us here, and I told you that I was a therapist and and I am primarily an addiction and a trauma therapist and my trauma therapist brain keeps saying like your nervous system is like a slinky like your nervous system is just like constantly saturated with like survival mode you're in survival mode when you're down there yeah, absolutely. I, I mean there's no question about that yeah. and i mean we know about like releasing stress hormones and and all of this stuff i mean you're you're down looking for one of the three things, whether it's evidence, a vehicle, or a person, and you said that sometimes it can be eight to twelve hours, right? That mm -hmm. that you guys are searching down there, and that is eight to ten hours of being in in a survival mode from a nervous system standpoint. And how how do you cope with that? How do you decompress from that? How do you get your nervous system like get back to this kind of like normal? this normal space of, of managing your, your, your nervous system. I mean, I don't know how else to ask that question. It's, um, Luke, are you okay? Are you doing okay? We just need to know. Are you blink twice? Yes, if you're I'm, okay. I'm okay. <laughs> it's not coffee. <laughs> it is. Um, we have lost a few divers. Um, again, it, it, trying to find people that, can do it, it is very different from people that want to do it. So we get a lot of applications for people that want to do it. And then unfortunately, when they do find their first body, that's it, it's done. Like some, some people don't have that mechanism to be able to cope with it. And that is totally fair. Mm -hmm. We we will talk to them. We will try to support them any, any which way we can. Myself and a couple other team members, um, we are emergency service personnel. Like I said, I've got 20 years of volunteer firefighting. My sister owns funeral homes. I do medical examiner transports for them. My dad is a police officer. So that side is very, our, our dinner conversations are very interesting sometimes. Yeah. And I so imagine. to be able to talk to the family is a good thing. Being able to talk to each other is a good thing. And, and, making sure that people don't think that they're macho or anything like that. Like just come talk to us. We're, we're here for each other. It's not a body underwater is very different from a body on ground. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when you see a, a, a body on ground or you go to an accident or something like that, you see what you're approaching. Even the compositions are very different underwater. You don't see what you're coming up to. 
depending on how long they've been underwater, it, it's it's always very, very different. So, Luke, as far as the retrieval process, and I'm really my I'm really trying to not allow my brain to get super gory, but I, yeah. I I'm I, I'm sh- hopefully that this is normal for people to have these just kind of like oh my goodness what is this. When bodies have been underwater and we're working with a decomposing, right? A decomposing be, body. Yeah. When you are retrieving a body, if it was in one piece, does it usually come out in one piece? Does it? Chelsea's laughing just so you know because our primary defense mechanism is humor and when we get like overwhelmed like I my nervous system is saturated just from thinking like hearing you talk about going down blind I can feel a knot in my stomach like like I'm a visual person I can feel even just the story you're telling so I can't even imagine what you're in and and I see Chelsea just being like ah wow I don't know so we've we've developed our own program and i don't know if this is common throughout other dive teams or not um, the new jersey boys taught us this and, and it's it's a very professional way to handle the deceased not just handling the deceased but it's also for respect to the family so what we'll do is when when we do find them we actually mark them and so what we'll do is we'll send up a is called an smb it's, it's a submersible buoy so we'll send it up We'll tie it to them. We'll send it up. And then we know where the body is always now. So then we'll come back and then reassess. Then we'll head back out with an underwater body bag. And we'll actually bag the body underwater and collect as much evidence or anything like that. We'll take up a little bit of silt off the bottom, any particulates. Maybe there's a bullet down there. If we, we, we try to gather as much stuff as we can under there. And then that way is is not only preserving the evidence, but when you do bring the deceased back up to shore or to the boat, and there's always family there watching, it's respect for them yeah. that they're not everything's already done, packaged, and all that stuff. And I'm so, so glad that you saved my comment or my question because I think that's what I was trying to say. Like, how do you how would you do? Because again, my mind is just going all over the place on. Yeah. So I'm so, it's amazing to know. And that obviously now that you say it, it makes so much sense. But like, I didn't, I had no idea that there was an underwater body bag, right? Yeah. And that would be a different material, a different setup than what you would think of a body bag on land, correct? For sure. So so the underwater body, body bags, they, they zip open differently. They almost like a almost like a sleeping bag. They're they're big. They're fluorescent yellow with special zippers on it, so with floats on it that glow in the dark, so you can kind of see, feel them or whatever. But then they're made of a mesh too. So when you do bring them up, you don't have a body bag full of water because if you're two hundred pounds and now you're bringing up three hundred pounds of water, those body bags are just going to split apart. So these ones actually drain as you bring them out, but collecting all the evidence. I, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I don't think I've ever had to process this much in an interview. <laughs> like fascinated. Well, I think it's one of those things and, and I don't, I don't want, I don't want you to think that we're like so hyper-focused on this kind of gory part of body recovery, but I think it's such a new it's such a new concept. 
concept for people like at least Chelsea and me that now that it's like this new kind of room in this house that we didn't know was there and it's like you're so curious because you can't even you don't even know how to begin to imagine or fathom what the process is Mm -hmm. and so then it's like oh okay so you're a diver cool you you go into water wow cool you know and then you're like but but it's pitch black and then you're like oh well that's not cool (laughs) and then we're like oh but you're going there to retrieve things so how do you do that when when you don't see it and then you're like you just feel for it and then we're like oh shit this is really this is wild (laughs) and then it's like oh then you find something and then we're like yeah but but then what like what i i just i'm having a hard time right processing this too because right i mean i've worked like i've studied in cadaver labs like i know that we had a rotation like lucas and i my husband and i both had um you know rotations in cadaver labs and like i said in I feel like I've been exposed to those things and my brain can process, you know, this is what a body looks like. And even like a cross section, right. Of, yeah. of, or exposing different um, organs that, that the cadaver, the learning cadavers or studying cadavers uh, we were able to explore and, and, and study. But again, yet, like I said, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around like, man, cause I, I hear, you know, you hear of like how badly bloated, you know, that word mm. of that body's become very bloated in the water. And like I said, I've just not been exposed. I don't think a lot of us have been exposed unless you've worked in that. Um, and, and, and I guess kind of with that thought, does that distort when you're, when you're starting to feel around, do you have to kind of mentally prepare for what a bloated body would feel like as opposed to, you know, what you would normally feel? think of what a hand or an arm or something would feel like in a normal state. Yeah. Would you have to kind of, you know, um, kind of prepare yourself for, I'm going to be looking for a bloated body. Uh, Unfortunately, there is no preparation for that. Um, You know, we've, we've pulled bodies out of the water that have been in the water for two weeks and they're still in rigor mortis, which is that would never happen on land. Right. Because, but because of the depths and temperatures of the water, the decomposition stage is slowed down so much that it doesn't affect. But so you're always shocked. You don't know what you're running into. You know, there's different begging processes for people in the rigor. There's different begging processes for floaters and, and people that are bloated and all that stuff. Um, we have, we've recovered somebody that was in the water for two and a half years. Uh, we did a search for two and a half years and found them and they were still, intact per se but it was very delicate now luke i imagine that that there's two sides to this coin when you make a a quote-unquote successful recovery there's kind of a sigh of relief that you found this person Mm -hmm. right who has family and friends and and who we collectively care about as humans and you're like okay good we found this person but then it's crap you know this sucks right and it's hard and, and are you usually the one who has to have those conversations with the loved ones of the individuals that you recover? No, so we don't have the conversations again. So because we're deployed by law enforcement, it is technically their scene. So they are the lead investigators. So we're just there for assistance to the law enforcement. So we do our job. It's like 
when they bring out ground search and rescue or something like that. Everyone's working under that investigator or the person that has that file. So we're, we do our job and then we report back to that case manager or whatever. And then typically they will go talk to the family. It's very rare that we do that. The hardest part is, um, the family always has hope and, and they should. Because if it's an eyewitness drowning and all that stuff, they think they're in the trees up on the shore or something like that. And they don't understand how slow the process is of recovery diving. So they want to see more happening. And so when you have to talk to them, I've talked to them, it's hard to explain to them, these are the steps that need to be taken in order for us to be able to do our job successfully. And we have an 86% recovery rate, which is fantastic. But having those conversations with them is the hardest one. Like, you know what, they're probably in the water. They're not on the shore or in the trees for the last three days. So, you know, please be patient. Let us do our job and, and let's see if we can bring him home or her home. Or hmm. that, That's our goal. I'm so glad you said that, Luke. You know, Bailey and I, that's a lot of, and, and you're going to hear us, um, th- our listeners are going to hear us say a bunch that that's really what a big part of what we're wanting to do with this podcast is educate, right? Yeah. Um, and just kind of, you're you're less ignorant when you leave. And, you know, we were talking about this when we did an interview on um, the police system, Bailey, with the Bayou Strangler. And David was uh, telling us that he was, he was like, I just, I just didn't know that process, right? I didn't realize that this is how long it took. I didn't realize that these kits were on back order. So I say that to say, I feel like so often us who are on the watching, you know, the viewing end of things, it's like, what are you doing? Why didn't you just dive down there? Why didn't you just email somebody? Why didn't yeah. you, I think it's really natural for us to think like that should be so much easier or that should be so much um, faster. So I really appreciate you talking about, again, just bringing awareness to this is a grueling process and um, it is something that I'm sure even if you could speed it up, you would not want to, again, because yeah. of safety and also respect, you know, making sure that things, the the crime scene it yeah. is treated with respect and to make sure that it's thorough and that you are able to save um, as much evidence as possible. You would actually be amazed at how many times I get emails throughout the year um, or phone calls globally, especially from the States of saying, you know what, my, my boy jumped off a bridge and you know what, the law enforcement is not doing anything. They have cameras in the water, but we need divers here now. And I, I I try not, like, we can't leave the province of Alberta, especially being volunteers, but I always respond to them saying, like, unfortunately, that's the process. Like, you just have faith and let them do their job. Like, it's, everyone thinks that jumping in the water is going to be the, the finding thing. That's the worst thing you can do. Take the time, take the steps, take the technology, stop, reassess, measure, and then when you have those targets, then go check it out. But just to jump in the water is the biggest waste of time you can spend. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, this whole thing is interesting. And I 
I am so appreciative for the work that you and your team do. I couldn't do it. I couldn't be in a vacuum, essentially, <laughs> right? A sensory vacuum. And, you know, and you're, vo and you're volunteering to do this. And then when you guys play such a such an important role and you're down there and you make the recovery, whether it's a vehicle, whether it's, you know, evidence, whether it's body, and then you you get out and you pack your stuff up and you drive home, right? Yeah. Like there's not, I feel like, and not that it's about that and I know that, but but I feel like you guys don't even get like proper recognition for what you do. It's not about the recognition at all, but. And we know it isn't, but that's Bailey, when Bailey stumbled upon you, like Luke, I'm going to say you, and I know that you're part yeah. of a team. I know that yeah. you're not, you, I know that you would say, it's not all me, it's my team. But when Bailey stumbled upon this, she reached out to me and she was, I would say flabbergasted almost, where she is like, I have spent so I've spent over a decade, you know, in therapy, in trauma, in true crime as a hobby, right? Like Bailey yeah. has always been very interested in this. And she was like, how did I not, how do we not know about this stuff? Why is this not something that is like, oh, maybe we could get a dive team out here, you know? And so for what it's worth, and again, we both know that you are by no means wanting any, you know, pats on the back, but thank you so much and i know that i'm always way too early on it sounds like i'm trying to conclude a an interview but no, no, for sure. this moment where i'm like yeah. thank you so much and we love you so much and <laughs> but seriously thank you for enlightening us on this aspect of what is essential i mean this is essential crime work this is not like oh yeah we you know we do it and it's kind of a luxury for this area like no this is essential work that all areas of crime all areas of law enforcement should be able to utilize for for sure and and thank you for that but it's like if i could say one thing too and you you say it's kind of essential and all that stuff and it's I need to say to like if people listen to this podcast and all that stuff, like, oh, I'm a diver and all that stuff. Please don't go and try to do this on your own. If you get a phone call, don't go and do it on it. It's not only dangerous, and I should have brought this up earlier when I mentioned the dangerous side too, is it's the after fact of it all too. So when you recover a body, you're bringing up, who knows, like you, you might be bringing a body that's full of AIDS or hep C's or anything like that. So you have to think about the post dive too, the decontamination side of it all too. That's more important than the dive itself. So when you bring a body up from water, they're expelling everything, all their fluids, all that stuff, and you're getting covered in it. There's no way around it. And so you need to do a proper decontamination thing after it. And then the finite cleaning thing It's not a, so please, if you were listening to this and you're a diver, please just don't go do it. Will you walk us through that, Luke, on the on the decontaminating process once you've come, um, I guess, what, above? Once you've come up? Once you're... What, what word am I? Once you've ascended? Once you've ascended, there you go. I'm, like, I'm trying to say... <laughs> once you pop out of the water like a beautiful... I'm trying to say statewide, <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a word. I'm not... I'm just, I think I'm just so overwhelmed. Ah. So, so we actually started a decontamination process before the dive. So we have special gear is vulcanized. Like we are totally encapsulated. You can't have any skin touching water. 
we are in special dry. So these are more certificates. You have to have your special dry suit certificate, your full face certificate, decontamination certificate. You can't be exposed to any of the environment underwater. And so we'll start the decontamination process prior to getting in the water by soaking ourselves down in a solution so that when we get in the water, we're actually, our gear is actually off gassing this solution to try to keep contaminants off of us. Theoretically, it sounds great, but when you start bringing up victims and they're expelling and vomit and bloods and you, you never know what somebody has and that stuff is just lingering around on you. So then you bring the victim up and then after when you, you can't even undress, like lots of people want to come out of the water, pull their full face mask off and say, I got them. Worst thing you could possibly do. Now all that contaminants is going into your lungs. You don't know what you're going to get. So you have to stay fully dressed. And it's, you're talking about 80, 100 pounds of gear that you're wearing. After you've already strained yourself on a recovery, now you're trying to get back up to shore to the decontamination site. So it's extremely exhausting. And then you have to do a thorough washdown in a systematic way from top down, pulling gear off in a special way. And then once that's all washed off, then you wash it off again. And then when you get home, you break every piece down, all your regulators, everything like that. You open them all up and you wash them thoroughly again. Even the guy that's decontaminating you, scrubbing you down, should be in a Tyvek suit, gloves and a mask. You never want to take that stuff home. In the allied health, or I guess any any health profession, um, we're taught this idea of universal care type of thing, right? Like you are going to view every single patient like they could be just, you know, patient zero. They could be the most infected, the most. So thank you for that reminder, because again, I imagine that that is something that would be very tempting to, like you said, you know, you pop up and you um, do all of that. Now, I'm sure that these things that you're talking about is stuff that not only they talk about during certification, but do you guys, do you guys try to get together, you know, and I say guys, I don't know, male, female, but do yeah. you people try to get together once a quarter and just like, hey, let's refresh Let's make sure. Do you do that kind of before every dive? How do you guys keep up your continuing education, if you will? It's really difficult for us. We try to as best as we can, um, especially, you know, again, we only have about the six, seven core people that do attend. But when you're talking about people, our members live across the province. So when you're talking that people live seven hours away from us, another member, for him to take that time off work to drive to a training scenario for a day or two, losing time, losing his time with his family, it makes it very difficult. So this is where the funding would be fantastic so we can reimburse members to make training more proficient and more regular. We do everything we possibly can. We have our standards. Um, obviously, standards can always be upped and and should be upped, but this is what we have to work with right now. And it, it, it has worked for us, but we'd like to keep up here. And while we're on that kind of note, and I just wanted to circle back to maybe start putting some bows on this stuff. Let's say somebody has an open water dive certificate, right? They've got the kind of the bare bones, if you will. Roughly how long is the process to become a certified underwater criminal investigator? 
it's all up to the individual really and in how much they want to spend they can take you can hammer through the courses in the course in a matter of a year or you can do it over four years or whatever there there's a bunch of steps that need to happen and you have to take them in the appropriate steps your open mm-hmm. water your advanced open water your dry suit your full face mask your rescue diver your public safety diver and again up in Canada, we're very limited to what training we can. That's why we had to bring up the Jersey Boys, who are fantastic. Yeah. They're they're wonderful. How did you guys find the Jersey Boys? You keep talking about the Jersey Boys or the Jersey team. How did you? Was that serendipitous? Did you guys like, um, uh, uh, you know, reach out on Facebook or whatever? How does that work? Um, so, so we reached out oh, five years ago. So. Our law enforcement up here, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they're our federal police, and they, they are the police for 80% of our country. Their dive teams have a standard called ERDI, Emergency Response Diving International, and we can't get that up in Canada. So we wanted to match their credentials so that we can say, you know, we're trained as well as you guys. We meet your standards. And so in order to find that, only one person in Canada instructs it, and he is an RCMP officer that instructs the RCMP dive teams. But because there's a conflict of interest, he couldn't teach us. So we got on Google and started Googling ERDI teams in the States because it's very common down there. You guys have so many dive teams down there. It's bizarre. But we found East Public Safety Diving out of New Jersey, and they have been fantastic. We talk to them all the time. I've helped instruct courses with them. I was actually just on a course with them last week. Um, they're asking me to come down to Boston or New, New Jersey in April. And uh, they're, they're, they're the gold standard of diving. Well, I think that's great. I think that you have at least the, the Jersey team as a resource, if you will, you know, somebody that you can share this process with because it's, yeah. it's, you're kind of in a, in a very small niche in what you do, right? Yeah. Very small. So I guess my, my kind of last, I have so many questions, okay? <laughs> but for the sake of, of respecting your time, I mean, I literally, I literally could talk about this for like 12 hours straight, okay? I just want you to know, Luke, that this has unlocked a new, a new part of my like fascination about what you do, yeah. probably because I don't think that I could ever do that kind of stuff. But why do you do it? Why, why do you, it's expensive, it's dangerous, it's, it's a lot and so many different meanings of the word. So, so why do you do it? Me personally, I do it because I have the equipment, I have the knowledge, I have the, the capabilities mentally to be able to do it. Um, and also it's, you know, we don't offer this service. Alberta doesn't offer this service, so somebody needs to do it. And if I have that capability, then that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm a big, firm believer in volunteering. Um, without volunteers in this world, it would be a very shitty world, really. Yeah. Um, even down to public libraries and all that stuff. But I, it's my way of giving back to not only my immediate community, but the provincial community and all that stuff. It's very important. Yeah. And I think that being able to bring closure to the families, right? To the victims' families is is a big part of that too. Most important. Could you imagine having a loved one 
down there with no no resources to bring them home. No. Everyone deserves to have to start that grieving process eventually. I, I wish sometimes it was faster, but unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's the process. And yeah, well, and again, one of the reasons why I was I I was so grateful that you agreed to join us here on the show but i think that's another angle of the true crime genre in the community and why chelsea and i are doing this interview style podcast is is bringing in the people like you who who are so important for the recovery and healing side of this genre that people just are so infatuated with right so i think it's it's one thing to you know, tune into your favorite true crime podcast and you hear this really gory story and you're just like, oh shit, wow, that's crazy. And then you get to click stop and then you get to totally shift gears and you get to go to work and you get to just be like, wow, I can't believe that, you know, this person is missing. That sucks for the families. Like they never found them. And then now we have people like you and your team and, and the Jersey boys who come in who are kind of playing out the other side of that episode. And I'm not saying it has to be criminal in nature, but I'm saying like, you know, someone's driving down the road and they get a flat tire, they drive off and they go into the water and they can't escape. And and now you guys are called in. Mm-hmm. And I just am so grateful to, to know about the services now and in this kind of community that you're a part of, because fortunately, like we, I told you, you know, several weeks ago when we spoke, Fortunately, I've never had to think about you or what you do, right? Mm-hmm. In my life, I'm very fortunate for that. Sure. And um, I just, I want everybody to know who you are. And I want everybody to know what you guys do. Because I am just, I'm so impressed by the work that you do. And I'm so grateful. And listen, I'm a fangirl, but my husband's a fanboy. Right. He's even more of a fan. And I think my brother-in-law Lucas is, is a total fan, but like you have so many people here just rooting for you and want to support you in any way that we can kind of a long winded piece. Yeah, absolutely. So Luke, my last thing and Bailey and I were talking about it a couple of, a couple of days ago when we were thinking about this process of interviewing people. And I, I kind of want this to be a trending thing, but I, I kind of wanted to ask you, what is there a question because we try really hard to come up with questions that are worth your time and worth your energy do you have one that you're like you know what i really wish people would ask me i you know what i really wish people would know and if you don't have one then that's fine but we just like i said we are ignorant this is new for us and if there's anything that you are like i just really really wish people knew this or people would ask this what would that be you know, in all honesty, I, 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 Bailey, I sent you the questions that were commonly asked, and it's, I don't really have a question per se, is because, again, we're not out there for recognition or appreciation or anything like that. We, we kind of like to work in the darkness, figuratively speaking and literally speaking, I guess, but it's, we're not here, we're just here to do what we can do help and it's you know people are more than welcome to email me if they have specific questions or anything like that there's lots of stuff i cannot talk about for sure but no like absolutely drop me a line or or whatever um 
you know, on, on the safety side, you know what, if, if people were life jackets, we wouldn't need to be here. <laughs> it's just, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's, unfortunately, we are here. I, our mom um, was always that sunscreen life jacket. And I, and I so remember, you know, Bailey and I, we, uh, we had an aunt that had a lake house and those things growing up. And I remember we were always in my recollection, we were always, you know, in a life jacket, but I do remember it was always begrudgingly, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. thankfully, we did have a mom who was like, make sure you wear your life jacket, make sure mm -hmm. you put your sunscreen on. And all the adults were just like, you're not getting on the water without a life jacket. Oh, yeah. yeah. But all yeah. the adults weren't wearing a life jacket or wearing sunscreen, were they? <laughs> I think ours were, though, actually. Oh, like, really? Uncle Frank and, like, our it's family was really big because our grandmother's um, brother, brother, our, our great uncle Sam, passed away um, in the, what, Chelsea, the 50s? So... Yeah, I, he. There were two girls who were drowning, and he jumped in to save them, and he drowned. Yeah, and, very common story. Yeah, he yeah. was able to rescue both of the girls. Uh, he was able yeah. to swim them to shore, and the family story is they speculated that he might have cramped up or just been so exhausted after rescuing both of the girls that he then drowned. And yeah, he was, he was 18. So that was, yeah, back in the yeah. um, mid fifties. So we've always, our family, because of that um, incident, they, they've always been just very cautious, I guess, wanting to respect. Yeah. And wanting to respect the water. It's, it's very common to recover the rescuer mm -hmm. and, and, a, and a drowning happens within seconds. As people think you're struggling out there, you don't know that they're drowning, but it's within like, a person can typically drown in 10 to 20 seconds wow. or faster. That's just yeah. it's horrifying. So, well, again, thank you for your humility. Number one, it's yeah. always amazing to hear people who we are just like, you're amazing. And you guys are like, Meh, it's just another day. We don't do it for any glory. Like that just as uh, Bailey and I have talked about how we never imagined that we would meet so many people in this journey of podcasting that have kind of restored our faith in humanity. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. I just, I'm kind of at a loss of words. And it's so weird because, you know, I do therapy for a living. And so I sit in emotions all day, every day. And I have for years and years, heavy emotions. But this interview stuff like speaking with you Luke is just it brings out a different kind of connection with my emotions that I'm not used to and I'm just it's so wild but it's so cool and it, and again it's just because I think I I think the word that we use is just like we're so in awe of the amazing thing that humans do and know and how they're impacting the world around them and we really just want to kind of like double down on that ripple effect right and have wonderful human beings like yourself you know hear your voice for our listeners you know the handful the couple hundred the couple of thousands you know just so they they are aware and they know who you are and that you exist and that's just it's just super cool and we're really grateful for for who you are and what you do yeah well, thank you yeah. very much well, i appreciate and that like like Bailey said, we um you know we're gonna obviously list anything that we can, all of your links, all of your uh, information in our show notes. So 
you know, and another thing that Bailey and I have kind of, um, I don't think we intended to start doing this, but we've really kind of started saying, so you, you listener, if you are like, hey, you know what? I, my new year's resolution is to look into a program that I could maybe support mm-hmm. or, hey, I want to write to my local, you know, government, my local um, law enforcement to get a ball rolling. I would highly, highly recommend Luke, you and the, your staff and your organization. And I know I keep saying you, and I'm sure, and I know that you're probably like, it's not just me. I know I've said that a bunch, but for lack of not knowing the, yeah. the rest of your team, um, I just, again, thank you for all that information. Thank you for the safety information regarding just as simple as life jackets. And um, yeah, you listener, I, I hope that you want to take on maybe donating or writing to yeah. some governments to get some changes yeah. going. Some of you guys have cousins whose aunt's cousin is in legislation in Alberta <laughs> and y'all need to send this podcast to them and be like, hey, like y'all, Alberta, you're listen, guys, you're, you're not looking good. You're not, you're, you're not looking good because you're the only, you're the only province that doesn't support Luke and his team. And what they do. And you need to get it together, man. Yeah. So, But in the meantime, check out our website. Um, You know what? If you can't make a donation, you can even buy our clothing. We have an online clothing store attached to the website. And it's a really cool clothing. Done. Ooh, I want to get Zach a shirt. I was going to say, done. Man, that is an easy yes for me. Mm -hmm. Easy yes. Yeah. And, And we'll just make sure to list everything in our show notes. And... We'll kind of tie it up there. Is there anything else that you need from us, Luke? No, I really do appreciate the opportunity, guys. This is uh, definitely something that has been out of my realm. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely not a public speaker or anything like that. Don't do interviews you did, very You often. did fantastic. And, yeah. uh, so okay. I appreciate this. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and Thank best you. of luck with your training that you're going to be doing down in the New Jersey area in April. And we would, I, hopefully, we can kind of keep up. Hopefully, you'll kind of post a little bit on how it's going and and just yeah. the the advancements within your group. And like I said, maybe we'll get um, an update that you guys have gotten some funding. That would be amazing. You will keep everyone updated on our Facebook post for sure. Awesome, awesome. Well, we appreciate it, and thank you so much, Luke. You're very welcome. Thank you, guys. Hey, Wildside Tribe. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you, so if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the The flip flip side. side.